Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We talk to practitioners and researchers of behavioral science in order to learn a bit more about why we do what we do. We try to peel back the layers in order to get a deeper understanding of what makes us tick. And today's episode is no different. Definitely not. Samuel Salzer is a behavioral designer and habit expert. In his daytime job, he helps organizations build user-centered and habit-forming products and services by applying the latest behavioral design insights. He is the author of Nudging in Practice, how organizations can make it easy to do the right thing. And in Samuel's second gig, he is the curator of one of the best behavioral science newsletters in the entire freaking world. It's called Habit Weekly. If you are not a subscriber to Habit Weekly, Please, 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 please go out and subscribe right now. I mean, the breadth of insights and articles that Samuel includes in each week's uh, newsletter is astonishing. But even more so is the quality of those insights that he finds. And I look forward to opening it up every single week. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Now, we didn't ask him this, but he has mentioned in other interviews that he reads over a hundred books a year, which is pretty damn amazing if you ask me. It is, and and I think he does it by applying some of the habit insights that he is an expert on, and he applies those habits and those insights to his own life. Yeah, maybe we should try that sometime. <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe. That might be a good idea. Yeah. Um, okay. It's time to plug leaving a review right now. This is my favorite part of the intro. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, Tim, that just says so much about you. (laughs) All right. So if you like this episode or any of our other 140 episodes, please leave us a review. We are working hard to bring insights from behavioral science in a fun, accessible way to as many people as we can. And you leaving us a review really helps. It does. And it is super easy. Just jump down to the bottom of your app and you can rate us or leave us a quick review right there. Or you could send a link of this episode or any other episode to a friend or two that you think would really just find it interesting. So so think of it this way. If if you send it to two friends and each of them send it to two friends and then each of those people send it to two people and then they send it to two friends and then oh, okay Tim and then two, all right. uh, Tim uh, Tim I think we got we got the picture all right the good mental picture thank you okay okay just work just trying to make it explicit but it would be fantastic if you could leave us a review or share this with a friend or two and we really do appreciate you doing that. Ah, but now it's time when we ask you to sit back in your favorite listening chair with an Australian flat white and listen to our conversation with Samuel Salzer. Samuel Salzer, welcome to the Behavioral Groups Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. We are glad to have you here. We have we have known each other some time for uh, online, and this is the first time we actually get to see you and have a straight, straight conversation with you. This is pretty terrific. So so thanks for joining us. We're going to get started with a speed round, and I'm not even going to wait. Coffee or tea? So this one is an easy one. So coffee, if I'm in Australia, tea everywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> Only in Australia is it coffee? Okay. Do they just not have good tea, or do they have really good coffee there? Good question. No, they have really good coffee. I uh, one we might talk about habits today, and one <laughs> habit that I really got going in Australia was 
living there for six years is just they have they have really good coffee and um there are a few things better than okay. having a flat white while having your brekkie on a Sydney cafe. You know. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. All right. So for our, our Australian listeners, they'll understand that. I think everybody else, we, we might have to put some notes in and connections to a flat white and a brekkie. But all right. Uh, dinner with your favorite musician or favorite sports player, and they need to be living. They need to be alive. Wow, that's a good question. I would say favorite musician. Um, oh, but you've just made Tim a happy man. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure who that is though. That's the question. I just make that's okay. I have a heuristic that it'll be more interesting conversation than my favorite sports star. Uh, I love that. <laughs> I love the biases coming through right there. Yeah. Okay, so uh, which would you prefer to learn uh, to be an expert in a new language or the master of a new instrument? So I'm. Um, Actually, learning Spanish now and playing ukulele, so um, I would choose still Spanish. I think. Oh, yeah. there you go. So language. Okay, yeah. now now you're not my favorite anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I'm damn happy that you're learning ukulele. That's a, it's a delightful instrument. But yeah, you know, Spanish though he could sing a Spanish song. Yeah, on the ukulele. While, playing, while playing the ukulele, you know, there you go. All right, Sam, last last question here. And I, I have to I have to pick between the couple that we have uh, chosen here. And I'm going to go with uh, are streaks a net positive for behavior change or do they cause too much backfire if you miss a day or two? That is an amazing question. And it, I actually think it's a complicated question. So I would still say that it's probably a net positive. Okay. But if I would get a chance, I'd love to unpack that. Well, that's where we we, we use this last Start one there. usually jump right in. Because I know one of the things that we wanted to talk about is, is habits and behavior change. And I know that you've uh, talked a lot about streaks and how streaks can be use to keep people motivated, but there are also some downsides. So help us explain or help explain to our listeners a little bit of your thinking around that. Sure. Well, we can start by thinking about why do we care about streaks? Maybe that's a good place, right? So that's perfect. One good question is why does streak matter? Why do we care about a streak? And so let's look at it from, let's say you're trying to build a habit and every day you're doing your habit, you're ticking off a box. And maybe after seven days, you're, you're starting to build this chain of ticks and, and call this a streak, right? And what's tricky is that with building something like a habit, how do you know if you have built a strong habit? Mm. What, what would you look at? It's quite an invisible thing, right? Obviously, we know that things are happening in our brain. Perhaps maybe some neurons are getting some stronger connections, some, some stuff is happening. But from our vantage point, we're kind of deprived of that knowledge. And so for us, what the streak becomes is a representation of our habit. And so in our brain, we make the shortcut that streak equals habit. So good streak, good habit. That can be a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing. So it could be very motivating then to kind of wanting to maintain this streak because it means that we're kind of maintaining our habit, we're building our habit. But also creates this false connection where if you break your streak after 30 days, that doesn't make your habit 
any worse in some ways. Okay, you've lost maybe one repetition. You've lost one repetition, but you have spent a lot of time creating a stronger connection in your brain, in your body, and so on. And so your habit is actually thriving in some in some ways. It's it's really starting to get stronger. And so just being connected to the streak, we might start to think of that. Well, okay, streak is broken, habit is broken. I'm just going to build, like, give up. Uh, and, yeah, and the what the hell effect, what right? the hell effect, yeah. yeah. And a good example of that, again, is why do people care in Snapchat? I don't know if you guys use Snapchat. It's a funny question. I'm, I'm an old man. <laughs> uh, my son uses it, and I, I'm, you know, I do not. Yeah, you probably wouldn't be the target group. That's why I asked. But, uh, no, yeah. No. Uh, so the good example there is that you have these incredible streaks that some of the younger kind of generate, like mostly teenage um, kids build up, where they have streaks of 300 plus days, 500 days, where they have messaged each other as friends every day for 300 plus days. And again, wow. why, why do, and they, when they go to vacation, they leave the, the kind of the logging details with their friends so they can kind of like log in for them and then send a fake message just to make that kind of streak maintained. And again, why do they care? Well, again, what is a friendship? How do we know if we have a strong friendship? It's invisible. And so the streak becomes representation of that friendship. And so if you can say, well, look, me me and Tim, uh, we have 300 day, we message each other every day for 300 days. We must be pretty good friends. Uh, Yo, yeah. bro. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's a good indication at least perhaps for, for a teenage mind to say, well, that means we're good friends. And so also if I break my streak, what does that mean? Maybe I don't care about this person as much anymore and so on. And so mm. it creates this false connection in some way. So it can be very motivating. And so if, if used right and if managed in a good way, I think it can be a very good thing um, to get us to stay on track and, and really build those neural connections uh, in the beginning. But then we got to have that also support in managing that over time and so that we don't get too hung up on this false connection as well. So how can people overcome that backfire when mm. I'm going for 30 days of eating healthy and then, whoops, 31 days, you know, I went to a party and ate a ton of pizza and, oh my God, I just blew the streak. I can't, can't check off that day anymore. What are some what are some tricks that we can bring to the table to say, okay, that's all right. Let's move on and not get stuck in that. Woe is me. What the hell effect I'm done. I should just quit. I'm no longer a healthy eater and I should just binge out on ice cream every single day. Great question. So I would say it comes a lot in to the day of experimenting and seeing failures as more as data points than kind of this mm failure in, in itself um and that's easier said than done obviously if you look at someone like carl dweck or angela duckworth they will be the first to tell you that it's not easy to change someone's mind uh, or mindsets rather and to make someone great is quite hard um but i would say that's still a very important component to to this uh, and we can I've, I've been part of uh, projects where we've been able to kind of show that we can maybe make not make someone completely super gritty, but we can improve their sense of thinking about it from a experimenting point of view. That in what I love to involve is something 
what's called implementation intention or a version of implementation intention where we look at what could be so one way to look at it is like okay i want to do this thing and so i make an intention to implement this habit but you can also look at it from kind of this idea of if like an if then plan can also be called so if this thing mm -hmm. happened so if if it's a rainy day and i plan to run i know that's probably going to stop me so what can i do in advance to prepare for that moment so that i ha i have a little bit harder time for myself to rationalize sitting on the couch and eating Cheetos instead of going out and doing that run that I plan to do. Because a lot of times what happens is that we have this goal, but then something comes along in our lives that makes that a little bit harder to do. And then it's an opportunity for us to come a really good excuse that says that, well, maybe we don't have to do this thing today. We can just wait, maybe do it tomorrow or something. And we're really good at that. We're, our, brain, our brains are like experts in finding a story that's... Uh, <laughs> kind of allowing us to skip. And so what we can also do is thinking about it in that way of, okay, so first having this set of if-then plans, but then we know we're only going to come up with maybe three or four or five good ones. And there's going to be some days that we fail. And then I'm just really then trying to focus on rewarding people from the point of like, that's great. Well, now you can improve your if-then plan, for example. Now you can add to that plan and you can become more resilient and more anti-fragile of sort. What if my plan was to sit on the couch and eat Cheetos? <laughs> I just want to throw that out there. But, <laughs> but, but you know, moving on from that, tell me more about the rewards. Uh, you, you, you talk about wanting to reward people for, for those kinds of accomplishments. Tell, talk more sure. about that. Well, you must be very productive if you have your, your goal to, to sit on the couch and eat Cheetos. <laughs> <laughs> he achieves his goal every night <laughs> I'm, I'm extremely successful right uh well so i would say it's actually a good question as well in terms of because reward is this word that's obviously thrown out a lot in our field we hear reward a lot and probably some of us or many people have been exposed to something like the book drive or maybe um some of the work coming from self-determination theory and so from that more people now would know that just having some form of the traditional carrot view of a reward can have a backfire as well in terms of it's a controlling form of motivation where it might get people to do a behavior right now, but remove that reward and the behavior will just seem so much less desirable. So you're thinking about, about ex extrinsic, extrinsic rewards exactly. specifically. And that's what right? I think when, yeah. when, I, when okay. people hear reward, that's what I notice they usually connect that to. So rarely mm -hmm. do they think mm -hmm. about more intrinsic rewards. And so that's kind of what I wanted to come to in that what I think is really important is just highlighting and really reinforcing the intrinsic part. And so what I like to do is, is in some ways trying to uncover what are the intrinsic rewards and then kind of connect that in a way of like when again, you want to reinforce something, play it back to what they value. What is the kind of the core things they feel like important to them or is kind of a driving internal driving force. Um, so playing it back. Do you have any hints on how people can understand what their intrinsic motivations are? Because I think in the world that uh, we work in, that is one of the hardest pieces for people to really understand why am I 
why do I get excited for doing this? We have that top level understanding, but I don't think that always gets down to that root cause of what it is. And so wondering what you suggest for people in how do they, how do they discover what is my real root uh, underlying intrinsic motivation for a reward for running or reading, learning Spanish or whatever that would be. Any, any thoughts? You were pretty much asking, <laughs> how can we help people to to really get a really deeper sense of their underlying motivations? And <laughs> if you can help me with that, I will be eternally grateful. Yeah, so so that me is too. that is inherently <laughs> obviously a very complex question. And if you ask someone like Robin Helmson or uh, you know he's written a good book on elephant in the brain in terms of our hidden motives he would tell you that uh, we have a lot of hidden motives that it's very hard for us to to kind of uncover ourselves. Um, so what I would say, though, is that the two things that I usually try to ask is trying to ask why a lot is a quite obvious one. Mm -hmm. So why start today, for example, is a good question. If they say, uh, I want to start running, it's like, why, why, why do you want to start today? Why do you want to start running today? And that has two purposes. Both, it might uncover some kind of intrinsic or underlying motives, but it also acts as a way of like motivational interviewing them to become more motivated at the same time. So they, they kind of, and again, whatever you ask someone in some ways, they have to provide an answer for it or their brain has to provide an answer. So depending on how you frame the question, um, it's going to be very important. And so if you in the same way would ask, why is, it, why is today a bad day to start running? They could come up with a million versions, right? Or reasons to that. So that I've, I've got I've got some ready for you if right. you need so that's yeah. why well, I'm not going to ask you that question instead I, I would ask you you know why why is today a good day to start um, and again in general if you don't want to if you want to remove just the motivational interviewing part and you just ask why it's just a very good thing and then you just ask why again and then ask why a third time and if you do user interviews that's a really important technique to use as well if you wanted to do some form of qualitative research that's a very underrated thing, just asking why a lot. Yeah, I know when in the work that both Tim and I do, we do a lot of qualitative interviews. And it is one of the aspects that trying to explain it to uh, some of the corporations and the leaders that we're, we're doing, they're going, well, that seems very simple. And we go, yes, it is. But you can get behind the their first level of answer is really what you need to do because that first level is is often not the the real reason what they're doing there. So um, I think that's really great and interesting. What gets us started on a streak? So uh, then we come into kind of the anatomy of a habit in some ways or a behavior, right? And so there are a couple of components. Uh, you can look at it in a very basic way. And you probably, if you read some books like uh, the power habits or even some new ones like atomic habits or good habits bad habits by wendy wood uh, who's someone i would really recommend uh, she's amazing uh, so uh, recommend uh, her book but and her research beyond that as well uh, she's one of the ones who's done a lot of research for a long time um, but i would say you usually try to look at behavior in or habit in usually three major components and so there's something that happens before the behavior, and then you have the habit itself or the behavior itself, and then you have something that happens after behavior. Um, and then 
what I think is underrated is that we usually talk about these triggers or cues or prompts, but we rarely talk about the contextual component and how important that is. Um, and so when I say contextual, that can be anything that happens around the time when you're kind of activated to do uh, your habit or behavior wanting to do. So let's say you wanted to go running, then you probably might have put that in your calendar at a certain time. And so what's interesting then is like, what is gonna happen? And it's probably gonna be a certain time of the day, which is just one part of this, but also you might be in a certain place. So the environment might be a certain specific environment. And you also would think about what happens before behavior-wise, what will be the order of behaviors that will come before kind of your um, intended habit. And that I think is the most underrated thing. Because if you look at the definition of a habit, okay, it's an automatic behavior, but it's in relation to a contextual cue. Um, and so when you remove the context and you only have, let's say, trigger, if you have a reminder only, uh, looking at how our brains work, it's very hard for our brain if the, the trigger is not stable in a stable context. And so, for example, I have a good, uh, good example where talking about Spanish, I've been learning Spanish on this app called Duolingo. And yeah. Okay, I can, can I brag a little bit here? You can, go for it. Okay, so I was able to build a 300-day streak or something. Um, Whoa! Yes. On, on, so you, on, you on are Spanish lessons? On my Spanish, yeah. Yeah, wait a uh, the, the less, um, the less what, what do you call it? The um, proud part of that or, or brag-worthy part is that it's a very, for a very shallow reason and that my, me and my friends started at the same time. Ah. And uh, <laughs> I ended up after two days for, for forgetting to to do this and um, had to restart. And then when I restarted, my friend was on a four day streak, and and then I was pretty much chasing him for three hundred days to to catch up. But obviously, you can't catch up on. <laughs> <laughs> but think about the motivation that that is driving. It's a yeah. it's an interesting part that we can depack a little bit later. But keep going. I'll talk about your story of three hundred. Yeah, days on Duolingo. So what's fascinating there is that with Duolingo, they have this thing called a streak freeze. And so you can add this function that if you forget to do your streak, it's okay for one day. Uh, because if you come back the next day, you can recover it. You, it's frozen and you can recover it. Okay. And what I noticed is that even after like 200 plus days, 250 days, there were weeks where I had like two or three streak freezes where I had forgot to do my lesson. And when I did my, you know, my own diagnosis of my own behavior, so to say, I noticed that one of the big reasons I thought was that I hadn't set a fixed contextual cue, so to say. I did my, sometimes I did my language study in the morning. Sometimes I did it on the way to work. Sometimes I did it in the afternoon or evening. And so for my brain, it was very hard for my brain to con connect the behavior to a certain time and place. And, and, and behavior and so on. Uh, and so what's really important is to kind of make, obviously if you want to make something automatic, pretty much we're trying to tell our brain is, okay, every time you see this thing or every time you're at this place or every time you're done this thing beforehand, you don't have to think, you just do the other thing. You just do this, this habit. Uh, and if you're changing the place, you're changing the time, you're changing the order of things, it's pretty much impossible for your brain to, to learn that lesson. 
Oh. Yeah. So, so you're not, the habit is formed by that, that trigger of the cue, right? And so that mm. trigger cue is, is contextually based. And so if you're changing that up, you're not reinforcing those same neurons for that when that trigger cue happens in order to make that, because you're doing it after breakfast, you know, after lunch, before dinner, you know, right before I go to bed, all of those cues, then you have five different different cues as opposed to one cue. So 250 is not actually that, which gets back to um, mm-hmm. uh, Philippa uh, Lolly and, and her work on, you know, trying to identify how many days it takes to, to form a cue, which I am always hate when people go, oh, it's 21 days or it's 66 days or whatever those, those days are, because it's dependent upon from her work, right? Her, her she she kind of points out that it's dependent upon both the individual, but also on the habit itself, and how hard or difficult that habit in and of itself is. So, I think there's some really interesting pieces there because we look at this and going back to what you talked about the 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 visible part of streaks because we don't know what's going on in the invisible part of inside of our brains. Uh, we use those streaks as this visible marker and saying, yes, we're doing really well, but we're really not if those streaks are not being processed and and encoded in our brain in the way that we think they are because we've just done 250 days or 20 days or whatever. But if we've done them in different places, different locations, different times, that encoding isn't happening exactly the same in each one of those places. Yeah, that's beautiful. No, it's 100%, 100% right. And so kind of what you were mentioning with Philippa Lally. So she did this great study. I think that's one you're referencing where they tried to understand, okay, how long does it actually take to form a habit? Because there's one number you've, you said that 21 days. It takes 21 days. And I don't know, do you guys know where that comes from? It's actually a funny story. I, I do. I don't know if Tim does. So it started with this guy, I think it was called Martin Maxwell or something like that. And he was a plastic surgeon in the 1950s. And he noticed that when he did a nose job, or let's say even an amputation of a limb or something like that, it took about three weeks for a patient to get used to their new kind of condition, um, to, to the new nose or their new limb and so on. And so, and he kind of extrapolated on that, that he noticed in his own life that, well, I actually, when I move house or when I change jobs, it takes me about maybe 21 days to get used to to that as well. Oh my and God. So he wrote this book called, I think, Cyber Cybernetics or something, Sex Cybernetics, that became a huge bestseller in the 60s. Uh, and one of the things he mentioned was this this random hypothesis. 21 day. 21 yeah. day, yeah. And then, yeah, the rest is somewhat history, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. And so that's, that's why that comes from. That is so sad. <laughs> it's just really, really sad. I know somebody's nose job and how long it takes them to look in the mirror and go, "Oh yeah, that's me." Versus you know, forming yeah. an actual habit, I think is really, but, but really is, interesting. This is why, uh, though, are, are this there's are actually there's still sort of this complexity of having a habit to drink coffee in Australia and drink tea everywhere else. Right. I mean, it sounds like that's not just your preference, that that is the norm. That is that is the way that you go about life. Mm-hmm. When you're in Australia, the context says, I'm going to drink coffee. But everywhere else in the world, you're just not you're you're not tempted to have the coffee. It's just like you know, this just doesn't make any sense because I'm out of that context. Well, so we can actually talk about the other side of the behavior 
that makes a habit. And that's, again, a little bit going back to like the reward idea of, of, of reward. And here we're talking about reward again, but I would say what's important to consider is that when we look at a, a behavior that turns into habit, um, it somewhat solves a problem for us. You can look at it. So any habit usually kind of solves a problem. And again, here it's a little more nuanced than you're saying that it's a reward reward in the sense of it could also be like removing something bad um mm-hmm. so it could be removing pain it could be removing displeasure all of these kind of things uh, or discomfort i mean um and so with something like uh, coffee i've obviously tried to have a flat white in when i was in los angeles or san francisco or back in stockholm for example it's just been a very painful experience and so <laughs> So, so you're trying to remove pain. So right? it's a, a yeah. negative uh, pain-bringing experience versus a pleasure-bringing experience. So yeah, you're actually that's what gonna, you don't want. That's what you don't want. You're when right. You're to build habit, and so um, that's that's very kind of good point there in terms of uh, what you're trying to do is have some form of positive end. Every time you've done the behavior you want to turn into a habit, you want to have some form of positive conclusion. Uh, it's a way to look at it. So I want to go back. Uh, you brought up this thing in Duolingo, and I think you called it, was it a streak freeze? Is that what they call it when mm-hmm. when you do that? Um, so what are your thoughts on that? I'm going back to James Clear, and one of the things that James Clear talks about is never miss twice. And so he talks about his workouts, and he would always get really upset when he missed a workout. And then he came up with this motto of just, never miss twice. He said, you know, some days I'm just not going to be able to get there. It's it's cold and rainy. I'm not going to go for my run and it's just not there, but I have this motto never to miss twice. So then I don't lose that really long-term streak on that. And it sounds like Duolingo has a similar kind of feature and going back to that blowback on streaks. If people don't have this idea that, wow, I've I've missed a day, so now I've just blown it. If you can have a streak freeze or a never miss twice mentality, does that help? Or is it a crutch that people use to, ooh, well, now I've, I, I'll go every other time as opposed to going every time? Yeah, I think it's mostly helpful in some ways. Um, in terms of, I think it doesn't solve the problem of people seeing the streak as maybe more than it is. So, that is still something you need to manage and help people manage. Okay. Um, it's because it still kind of just makes this, you know, you have to maintain a streak. And so it gives you another reason to like being able to get back to the streak. Uh, and probably the James Clear version is prob- one way of looking at just uh, adding some form of commitment as well. So yeah. he, has, he has this very strong, it seems, uh, kind of personal commitment to himself that, you know, okay, it's okay for me to miss one day, but never two. That's a personal commitment yeah. to me, and if I if I break that, it's kind of like, you know, breaking my own heart in terms of I'm I'm <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm somewhat making myself disappointed in terms of um, that way, and so that's probably like call it like adding another motivational behavior technique to make it even stronger. like racing your friend and on uh, Duolingo and trying to catch up to him, even though you will never catch up if he maintains a streak. Hundred uh, percent, and I would say. Actually, to finish off a little bit of the lingo talk here is that what's really important is that both me and my friend noticed that, well, like, heck, we started using this app to compete with each other. And it wasn't so much about (laughs) learning language anymore. 
And and that was obviously like somewhat of a undesirable outcome. And so yeah. when I work, because I work with a lot of companies and, and startups and different types of, of usually uh, tech companies and health mainly, and having a streak sounds like an exciting thing to have in your product. Uh, and a lot of gamification features have this kind of allure of it's going to be such an engaging experience for people. But we really got to think about what is the kind of the potential side effects. And um, and it's okay to have certain things like this. But then again, you have to be really good at also building in functions that support, for example, uh, their ability to, to manage failure, to their ability to... Uh, also compartmentalizing this in terms of seeing it as kind of a, okay, partly motivation, but still why I'm learning a language is not to have a streak. I'm learning it to be able to, you know, travel to Spain and order my maybe uh, tapas in Spanish and look cool and low, like, I don't know, <laughs> many different yeah. reasons, right? But But not so much for a streak, so... It reminds me of a story I, I read a number of years ago now where this woman was talking about her Fitbit and the crazy things that she was doing to get her 10,000 step in because she had the the team that she was working with. And she talked about staying up at 1130 at night, realizing she needed all of these steps. So she would walk around the house you know, until midnight in order to get her 10,000 steps. And she said it wasn't healthy. It was actually really counter healthy. So this idea of maintaining these streaks, particularly if there's a competition perspective put into it, can have some negative impacts that we need to really be cautious of, particularly if we're working with uh, with people uh, in, in a design of, a, of an app or a product that has, as you said, healthy or you know sexy kind of things of doing that but there could be some some negative re repercussions from that so we need to really be thoughtful in how we're approaching this and making sure that we're not doing putting something in just to put it in because we know it's going to have a uh, an impact on people doing the thing, but are they doing it for the right reasons? Samuel, you've talked about cognitive dissonance as being the most underrated of all behavioral science you know, uh, foundations. Sure. Okay. So got to unpack that. Why is cognitive dissonance the big one that, that gets missed? So first of all, it's just such a fascinating look into how our brains work. Um, so a little bit to explain cognitive dissonance, so what it means, because a lot of, I think a lot of people haven't heard about that concept still. And so in a very simple way is that we obviously have a clear identity of who we are, and and we have this view of ourselves in the world. But then, as we interact in the world, um, we might do things that are not fully in line with how we see ourselves. Um, so the behaviors that we do might go against uh, this image that we have. And then we have two options: we can either change our mind, or call it change our story. And so, let's say. Kurt, uh, let's say you would see yourself as a very uh, fit person. You would you see yourself as you know I'm I'm quite active. I'm you know doing a lot of things, and then uh, someone asks you you know when was the last time you went for a run or, or or went exercising, and you have to look in your calendar and you look one week back or two weeks back and three weeks back, and you realized 
oh, that was quite a long time ago since I actually went for a run. And then you could either change your mind and say, well, okay, maybe I'm not as fit as I thought I was. Uh, maybe I have to kind of reevaluate my current uh, state of fitness. Or you can change the story. And so you can say, mm -hmm. you know, it's been a very busy work period. Uh, the kids have been, you know, I've had to help my kids a lot with their homework and stuff like that. And also with this renovation of my house, it's taking a lot of time. And, and so you come up with a story that kind of justifies this, this uh, still idea that you're, you're a fit person. And so we're fascinatingly good of creating these stories, right? And um, that's, that's what I, find, I think is very fascinating with this concept and just starting to think about this really lends itself to also start thinking about how our brains work and how we engage with the world. And, and so how does that impact us? So, so I tell a little story about the reasons why I don't, you know, go out and, and run, even though I still think of myself as this healthy running kind of guy, how, how does that actually impact us? And are there positives to that? And, and are there negatives to that? Yeah, so I'm I'm gonna choose an example that's a little bit grim in some ways, but it's it's one of those that okay. have stayed made with me. Uh, it's actually from the Influence book by Robert Caldini, and mm -hmm. and so he talks about commitments in in one of the chapters. So one is about commitments, and so if you look at what cognitive dissonance is, it's kind of part of that is uh, comes from commitment. So once we've made a commitment, uh, if we fail to live up to this commitment again then we have this cognitive dissonance uh, where we have to realize, well, I promised to do this thing or I was supposed to do this thing and I didn't do it. And we have to kind of make, make some form of, of understanding of this. And what he talks about there is in the Korean War where they had prisoners, uh, POW camps uh, with American soldiers. Uh, so there was mostly, I think, China had started to create these POW camps. And uh, what they started to have the capture soldiers do is to start writing down things like uh, America is not as it's not a perfect country for example um so to get certain benefits in the camps like good food or or certain freedoms or cigarettes for example they said write down this idea of America is not a perfect country uh, they could still you know believe whatever you want to but that's the only thing they asked them to do right and then what they could see is that that still had effects. So the people that came from this uh, camp still had a changed view of how they s afterwards saw uh, American politics and, and these kind of things and how the role America played in the war and so on. And so inevitably just having to see yourself write down something and putting yourself in that situation of, well, I have written this down. And especially I think they, they did something quite intense where they had people you know, publicly say these things, like on radio, they have to say these things. And then when you've had yourself public on radio saying something, it's going to be very hard for you to then say that, no, 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 that was, uh, uh, it's you just reminded about how, how terrible of a, of a thing that is. Yeah. Well, and, and I think in that, that uh, story, the, the, the way that they work that too, is they started really simply mm -hmm. like, you know, yes, not everything in America is perfect. And then, okay, America isn't a perfect country. Then America is an okay country. They kept ratcheting that up because you have now built you well you said it wasn't you know everything in america isn't perfect now you can go to that next level and the next level and the next level and that was a way that they really converted some of these uh prisoners of war into 
really sounding out and becoming uh, anti-American propaganda machines that they they actually built and used. And they they wondered how you could get somebody who was a diehard, you know, American soldier to within a relatively short period of time change their tune so much. And it really was using cigarettes and a little bit of better food and incrementally getting them to change that. And then using cognitive dissonance of saying, well, you've said this, you must believe this and it's been publicized. And so now I have to change the the story that goes on in my head. I'm not a proud American. I'm actually a dissatisfied American because of my actions. Um, Exactly. And so I think that is probably the I think you asked, like, what is the good and the bad of, of how can we see this? And I think that is a way where it can be um, quite of a sad or terrible thing. Um, but I think what cognitive dissonance, like understanding that better really allows us is, is to better see how how we make these stories. And I think it's a very powerful thing to, on a personal level, um, you just be better at understanding how you shape the stories that shape your life. And, and it can be uh, on a positive side. I mean, imagine waking up every day and and describing myself in a particular way, right? If if I was just using this for self reinforcement, right? If I just got up every day and and wrote down something positive about what I wanted to do or how I perceive myself, um, that could be right. That it could still have the same effect, right? So if I'm not a runner and I say, if and every day I write down and I like and I write say uh, I I don't mind running. You know, running's okay, and that, and then ratchet that up to I really like running, and I, you know, I then I start feeling like, well, gosh, I should be doing it if I'm writing it every day, right? I mean, is isn't the the counter side of that um, equally as powerful, Samuel? Yeah, it's um, definitely potential to be. I I think as well. This really good book I can recommend on this topic for anyone who's interested to dive deeper. And it has a great title, probably one of the best titles of books, and it's called Mistakes Were Made but not by me. <laughs> I, I have that book. I have not read okay. it yet. So, so, so that yeah. book just talks about, you know, how we rationalize behavior and, and our own behavior and, and how, you know, others' behaviors and so on and, and the stories we make. And I think what I like to talk about and when I do classes on, on behavioral and behavioral design and all those kind of things is that you just help people see that we are storytellers. Like we are, like that's just part of who we are. Mm. And, um, from when we're born, we're starting to tell stories about how the world works. So whether that's seeing a ball fall from the table to the floor, then ask yourself, why does the ball fall from the table? And we might ask our parents then, say, why? And they might tell us a story called gravity. And we don't, we're don't, we not physicists at that point, but uh, that's a story that kind of works at, at a certain degree. And so, so we are story machines. And especially when then we see ourselves, like to say, we, we're seeing ourselves doing something that doesn't align with the story that we tell ourselves. I, I think that's a very good opportunity to increase self-awareness and, and increase kind of your understanding of yourself. So that's probably how I would, would yeah. really use this as well in terms of thinking about it from that perspective of, of trying to, to see how, what is the story I'm telling myself? How close that is that to reality? And then how can I shape story or shape reality to kind of get where I want me to go. And it's a reinforcing loop, Mm. right? So if if you are actually telling yourself the story that I do like to run, and then you actually run, it's a reinforcing that actually then doubles down on that as opposed to 
you tell yourself the story, I just like to run and you then have to make other stories up because of why you don't run, uh, you're not as reinforcing. And so that is a more tenuous link as we're moving forward in this. Samuel, I want to talk a little bit. You've created uh, a tool called the Habit Canvas. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and some of the science that goes into what it what you're doing with that? That'd be fantastic. Sure. So pretty much what that comes from is just me for a long time being very curious about habits and how I can, in an easy, scalable way, help people in their kind of quest to build better habits. If you wanted to build habits, there weren't any good tools to easily start implementing good habits in your life. You could read books, you could listen to podcasts, but there weren't many kind of tools to guide you on the process. And so I was kind of inspired to just see, could I create some form of tool that can easily help people to both help them plan, implement, and track kind of the habits that they wanted to make. And so the habit canvas is something that's been kind of a passion project for maybe four or five years. Now I'm relatively happy with it. It's still, I think it's improving every year. Um, and it's been used by thousands of people around the world. So it's been very fun to to see very positive uh, outcomes from, from that. Um, but pretty much it guides people on one canvas, they fill in one canvas, and then they have their kind of all-in-one plan to, to tackle their habits or build good habits. Okay. What's some of the science that has gone in? What, what were you using to help people, you know, make and, and commit to those habits? Yeah. So this actually started from more of like a, call it like, um, oh, no, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if it's bottom up or top down, but it's science and then the canvas. So I, the, I started with me just part of my work has been cataloging habits research. And so mm-hmm. as I've been doing it, I've been kind of like starting to categorize it and notice that, well, there's certain types of things that comes up often in habit research. And then as I started to categorize it, I noticed that, well, there's certain things maybe we could combine to make some form of canvas out of. And so so that's where, where it comes from. So if you actually download the canvas, I have referenced at least, uh, it's going to be the most important ones. It's much more research actually than <laughs> uh, that I've, than I've, than I've used. So, <laughs> Uh, what you see there is just kind of the, the highlights, um, but it's actually yeah. one of those things where if you're really curious, there's some really good research papers uh, in the kind of the the back part of the canvas. I was wondering if we could tease you into talking about a super ambitious, super secret project that you're working on right now, or not? You know, uh, you I know we know that you've got something brewing, and we're just wondering if we might be able to get you to share a little bit about it. Sure. Okay. Uh, so this is actually something that's pretty much today is the first day I can talk about this. Uh, so. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Uh, cool. It's pretty fun coincidence. Um, but uh, me and uh, a fellow behavioral scientist, um, Chris York, who's also extremely experienced in in kind of applying behavioral science to practice, uh, we've been thinking about this idea of how can we teach behavioral science in a way where it's not just giving people uh, cool words to remember and dropping conversations, biases and all this different stuff. But actually- Oh, wait a minute. Wait, wait. I, isn't that awesome though, to be able to do that? <laughs> what is that's wrong with all, that? That's all that's we all, do. You know that's, that's all that Tim and I know. Come on. 
<laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. That's a great uh, bonus part. But I think what's really amazing if you can actually turn, obviously, the things we know to practice and build better products, shape better policies, all the things we want to do. And so, uh, looking at courses, unfortunately, I would say most courses and most training in general is not that good. Um, it's very tailored in a traditional style where we assume this kind of most people are this extremely rational and work in a very optimal way in terms of just tell people for two hours what you want them to learn and then they're going to leave knowing exactly what they're going to do and they're going to do that thing uh i I thought that's how it worked actually (laughs) yeah i think that's sarcasm alert sarcasm Sarcasm alert there you go tough to break too but sadly that doesn't really work that well um and and i'm guilty of that as well i do a lot of workshops i do a lot of teaching and and that's one of the things that have been like kind of frustrating me in in a lot of my work and so we were thinking about what can we do to to make that better and so we've designed this 52 week or one year program um it's a very ambitious one but it's pretty cool because every week the goal is to give you something that you can learn but obviously put to practice straight away and that you can hopefully see some form of like roi whatever that is for you what kind of metrics you use to measure uh, but very hands-on. So it's going to be behavioral science, but really kind of like putting that to practice as well. Do well, you have a name for it? So if you go into uh, besci.org, so besci.org yep. slash groups, uh, you can learn more. Okay. Ooh, okay. That's a big mystery. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, w- with that... Uh, I'd like to turn the conversation over toward music. Kurt, do you have any anything that, well, that you I, absolutely I, want to get in before we get to music? Because this is going to take I a while. I do have one. I do have one question that I do want to ask. So, uh, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now, and we've been talking about this. And you have, I, I think, by far, uh, you curate one of the best resources of behavioral science out there, Habit Weekly, which uh, every week shows uh, brings in some of the highlights of the different research and and media and papers that are out there uh i i read it all the time and and find gems in there every single week um and so just wanted to get your take um with with the pandemic it's been now been you know we've been sheltering at home in minnesota for a little over a month and 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 a lot of this has been happening in different parts of the world for a little bit longer uh, and there's a lot of behavioral science response to this what what do you think of the behavioral science response to the pandemic overall positive are we trying to fit too much research in very quickly. I know there's been some concern by some behavioral scientists of the validity and the quality of that research. Uh, just your your initial takes, because you get to, you read a lot, um, you go through a lot, and I just wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, so I can, I can provide both sides. So I think one thing I've seen is just an amazing response from a lot of behavioral scientists that really wants to help, wants to do really good things. And um, that's been very, very, quite amazing to see. And I've been fortunate to be able to help out with some of these projects. Um, so I think there's definitely been a clear desire from our community to see how can we take part in, in some ways, helping out, in some ways, providing expertise or support in understanding this better. And 
and it's been quite amazing in terms of how many studies that has been started and how many studies that has been kind of put in put in put in uh put in running so i think that is a good positive i think what is something that's really hard for any behavioral person right now is that we're looking at probably the biggest behavioral experiment of our time uh, and then as we're yeah. looking at this it's really hard to not starting to talk about it from a behavior perspective and make hypotheses and make just so stories. And I've been guilty of this as well, uh, where I've been very quick to jump to conclusions or to to kind of talk about things in a way where it's maybe sounds more certain than it actually is. Um, and so I think that's something that I've seen in the community where maybe we should be a little bit careful of extrapolating or coming to conclusions too quickly. Uh, given that this is kind yeah. of like a one in a hopefully a lifetime thing, it's, it hasn't really happened in, in a very similar way ever before. Um, and so I think we should just be careful in the conclusions we make right now as well. Well, and I think we, to that degree, we've done the same thing on certain things. Toilet paper being one of them, which I know you you brought up a really, we did a, a a toilet paper asked a number of, of researchers on toilet paper and they all have their own ideas. And, and then you brought in some actual numbers of, Hey, it's really, people aren't hoarding as much as we think they're hoarding. It's just the actually supply and demand of if you buy one more toilet roll than you normally do. Right. Wasn't uh, that the, the insight to, that you brought yeah, in. So that's a really good example. So I think, that's just been a very salient example. We have seen these videos of people hoarding. It has been. Uh, we see these crazy things come circling on social media. And so it's just very tempting for us to talk about people as being just these irrational hoarders and doing you know, irrational behavior. And then there still could be a lot of hoarding that we, it could be more in other countries than others. Uh, but what we're seeing, at least from the UK, is that in most cases, is very, very little hoarding being run. So uh, it's about 3% of the population who's done some form of hoarding-like behavior. And even that, it's a very generous kind of way of looking at what actually, when we see anything about hoarding, it's probably much, much, much less than that because uh, they have a pretty generous description of what that can mean. Um, so yeah. what is actually probably contributing to this is a couple of factors, including fascinating things about toilet paper supply <laughs> that I never had uh, <laughs> thought I was going to learn about. But um, so there's these two different supply chains so for commercial and, and for private toilet paper. And since we don't use as much commercial toilet paper, we don't use it in offices in, in different places. That has decreased dramatically. However, we have this private uh, consumption, which is quite a stable for most part. It's not really changed much ever before. And obviously now we're kind of <laughs> just increasing a little bit. And then like you say, mostly it's like one person, every person maybe gets one more pack of something, whether that's toilet paper or spaghetti or these kind of things. And just one person taking one more pack has a huge consequence in the, in the bigger scheme of things. Yeah. When you talk about the large numbers that are yeah. doing that, all of a sudden you have a, a demand surge that was not anticipated and, and can't be uh, filled by the supply chain that we have currently no. in place. And it's a very rational thing. Like it's if, if you know you're going to be staying yeah. at home for more than you would normally do, you would need more toilet paper, among other things. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to use more toilet paper if you're there 
eight hours of the day that you normally yeah. aren't there. So, and we have all those those social norms uh, impacting us. I was in the grocery store yesterday for the first time after ten days, and guess what the 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 racks where the toilet paper were were almost empty. There were one or two packs, and this was about eight thirty in the morning, so relatively early. And I thought, boy, if you're if if, if shoppers are there much after nine o'clock, they're just not going to see anything. It's going to mm-hmm. be empty, and which of course stimulates that sense of. Oh my gosh, everyone's, you know, what am I missing out on? Maybe I should just buy more toilet paper. The the irrational side does kick in every now and then. Well, every and, now and, and then. You know. Yeah, but you also see the 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 media portrays us and social media portrays us with the pictures of the woman uh or the man, I'm not calling him out, but has that shopping cart that's loaded up to the brim and yeah. they're going out and you you go extrapolate out because that's a vivid image and we we remember it and so I, I you bring in a really good point of we tend to fall into sometimes the easy answer when in this time everything is not easy it's contextually based so what we know this about behavioral science in general right what what works in one situation it's it's the michael hallsworth of the world who i love because they talk about the failures of this worked great in place a worked great in place b and we did the exact same thing in c which is almost exactly alike and it failed miserably there because of some minute contextual changes that are going on and yet in this time of of crisis, we think, oh, well, this worked in in you know Singapore, or it worked over in Wuhan, or it worked in you know wherever we we do that experiment, and we can't necessarily translate those findings into the larger general audience because it may or may not work, and we can't make those assumptions, and we tend to fall into that easy habit. Not everybody, and and of course, I think the good researchers out there are are definitely making those claims of saying, hey, when we talk to people and different things, we need to make sure that we're we're putting this in, in context. A, this hasn't been peer reviewed. We can't extrapolate out, but I don't think that everybody and particularly uh, people who are, may not be as versed in uh, behavioral science really get that all of the time. And they just jump to those conclusions. And I think that can be uh, a negative in the in the long run. Samuel, you live uh, near the epicenter of music these days. Uh, Spotify was created in Stockholm, right? And I'm just wondering if you're a big Spotify fan, and if you are, what's on your Spotify playlist? So, fun fact: I was part of the 1,000 first Spotify users in the world. Oh my yeah. gosh! We have a celebrity on, on board here. And so how they actually did it is that they had this website where you had to log on at a certain time and they randomly gave out free accounts. And so me and my friends would log on for like, I think 20 days until we got our, our free account. 20, so it, it took it took more than 20 days to get to the first 1,000 listeners? I think so, listeners? Yeah. They gave out just like, I think every day they gave out like 10 accounts or something. Like wow, that. okay, that's that's cool. Okay, so and are you still a listener? I am. So they they got me there for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're on a streak. Um, what's what's on your playlist these days? Uh, well, let's make this a little bit nerdy uh, and talk about the behavioral side of this. Um, so I have some songs that I use for a little bit nerdy part of this in terms of like priming songs. Um, yeah, and uh, maybe that's something that could be relevant here to talk about. So 
I have started to uh, experiment with just, I have this morning routine where I do kind of this physical exercise morning routine. And what has worked really well for me is I have this playlist that I play the same songs every morning. And it sounds really boring. And I thought it was going to be really boring. But it's just been quite amazing, actually. Um, so it's been just fun to have, like, it's been 30 minutes uh, playlist that I created of kind of some new songs that sound good. And then that has been a very, very um, successful experiment of sort uh, in my life recently. Um, so that's that's one that's one where it's kind of like prime me really to just be in the zone of like the exercise I need to do, and I don't want to think about the time because I know kind of this now I've started to like know which song is kind of getting close to the end, and so I can kind of wrap it up a little bit quicker. And yeah, that's been a great great experiment. That that is interesting. What about when you work? Do you listen to music while you work? Uh, so talking about Spotify again. So what they did now in the turn of the se- the the decade, they had this thing called. I think songs of the decade and you could see your most popular artists of the decade. And I was really excited to see like, okay, who is it going to be? Is it going to be someone from early 2010 or late? Because my song kind of taste has changed a little bit. So uh, then I looked and I got the biggest surprise because I never expected this person to be the most listened to artist. And it was Hans Zimmer. What's my... <laughs> No way. Hans Zimmer? Hans Zimmer. And it was funny because I was like, how is this possible? How is this person my most favorite artist? Uh, And I realized that... Oh, 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 this is is your most listened to artist. My listened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if asked, I wouldn't have listened to him on my top 100. I wouldn't have said him, obviously. (laughs) But he shows up everywhere. But but I mean he's he's everywhere, right? I mean all all the soundtracks and all, all the soundtracks, the, yeah, all that stuff, yeah. So when you said like what you listen for work, and so what I've done for a lot of my time, both at doing research and also doing work, is I have this playlist for movie soundtracks, um, and it just really puts me in the zone. And uh, Hans Zimmer as as one of the ones that contributes to a lot of those songs, and yeah, and so. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those things like where I would never expect to to have uh, Hans Zimmer as my number one artist, but apparently that's the case. Is he your number one artist to listen to when you're doing some work? Like, what about when you're writing or when you're researching or crunching numbers? Yeah, so it's changed a little bit, but I think still, I think that playlist has really has been. So my book, for example, I can dedicate part of my book to that playlist. I can. <laughs> I can dedicate a lot of things to to that or one or two other playlists that are, are similar in terms of just having some form of uh, no singing, but more just some form of good beats or good kind of things. And uh, obviously, you, you it makes book writing a little more interesting when you feel like you're in Inception or when you feel like you're in Batman or something. Tim, that's what we need. We need to have a movie soundtrack for, 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 for our book <laughs> when... Uh, the Avengers or something. I don't know. Maybe we could get Hans Zimmer or, or John Williams or, um, you know, who knows? Danny. Um, What's his name? The one Elfman. who's Italian. Danny Elfman. Danny Elfman. Yeah. 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 Samuel, thank you. This has been fascinating. Uh, we we love the work that you're doing with, with Habit Weekly, but it's also really great to talk to you about 
you know, the, the work that you do and the research that you've brought to this, it's, uh, you're not just a curator, you're actually bringing some insights into, into the world of behavioral science. And so we appreciate that very much. And thank you for spending time with us. We, we're so excited. We actually get to, you know, see you, uh, our listeners won't, but, uh, you, they get to hear you and it's, it's great to finally, finally meet. Yeah, no, and likewise, and I, I can steal this last moment, um, and and you say that it's one of the most underrated things you can do for any creator. I can you saying that from being uh, you know do with Habit Weekly is that I would encourage anyone listening now to check out your podcast on uh, whatever platform, but I guess most Apple Podcasts and subscribe and leave a review because one of those small 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 actions I know makes a big big difference, and I think contributors to our world of behavioral science uh, as, as you two are I think we shouldn't take you guys for granted I think you guys are doing an amazing job so uh, that's uh, my little bit cheesy ending but I think it's really important oh thank you, thank so you. that's very yeah. kind of you Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavioral groups discussion with Samuel, have a free-flowing conversation, and whatever else comes into our streaking habit-forming brains. <laughs> I love and that's, that. And that's not the streaking, like taking our clothes off and running in public brains. You know, it's it's streaks. It's the, you know, one after another, after another, after another that we continually do. It is, it is worth noting that that fad in the 1970s about streaking was really kind of about one-off things. It was about, you know, showmanship <laughs> and making some kind of a political poke your finger in the somebody's side by saying, I can run through this public event naked and and you're going to have to work hard to catch me, you know, just to throw <laughs> everything off. I, I, I always thought it was kind of interesting. So why did it get a name streaking? Where, where did that come That's from? A, Do you have any idea? I don't. I don't, I don't either. It's a it's a good question because it was just running naked through a big yeah. crowd, you know, in a public event. It, yeah, I mean, so it was, how did it get termed streaking? That's an interesting piece. Any, if any of our listeners know, please let us know. Send us a note. And we'll and if you are episode. too young to know, then you should look up streaking. Seventies <laughs> <laughs> phenomena. And, yes. and what was the song? The streak. They, they call me the streak. Yeah. There you go. That's they call one. me the streak. So, so, Kurt, what what was it about? Uh, yeah, there's many things to talk about, right? But, but yeah. what's what caught your attention first? What what, what do you want to cover? Streaks. Streaks. Streaking. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, this idea that streaks can have both a positive and a negative. Oh, right. Perspective. Right. That they can be used to be powerful motivators to help us form habits, to demonstrate this invisible thing that's happening inside of our brain as this outward manifestation of the changes that are going on, that we're doing this over and over and over and over again. But then there's this negative side of it where we're doing it just because of the streak and not because of the behavior that we want to learn, as Samuel said about learning Spanish, it was competing against his friend and making sure the streak continued versus learning Spanish for the reasons he wanted to learn Spanish. Yeah. For the joy of it. Yeah. 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 So I thought that was fascinating. Well, it, you might just 
I think it's good to be reminded that streaks in and of themselves are neither good or bad. It's how we, how they, how we interpret them really it, and, and the context that we're experiencing them. But this, uh, this negativity side, I thought was just, we can focus on the wrong thing. We can yeah. really get caught up in this idea of, of, oh my gosh, you know, I've got this going and I have to do this or, or worse, I've missed, I missed mm. one day. Uh, and as J- you love to quote James Clear with the, don't just, don't miss twice. Right. But, but the world around us changes, you know, that it, we're it, human. It, Things, We're things human. are not going to go perfect all the time. We're going to miss a day eventually. Right. And I liked his the the piece that Duolingo does with the streak freeze. Um, mm-hmm. a, a great way of building in to some of these apps that use streaks or you know continuations in order to allow that humanity to come forth and understand our we might be sick a day. We might have, you know, stayed up all night uh, over, you know, a, a sick kid or something else. There's lots of reasons that life happens and gets in the way of doing things. But that doesn't mean that that should then automatically cancel all the progress that we've made and yeah. give yourself a, a break on that. Because that's going to put us into what Stuart King called the what the hell effect. Yeah. And it's like, well, I missed one, so I'm done. I'm just yeah. forget it. You know, I'm, I, I had I had one beer this week and I thought I was going to have zero beers this week. And because I had one, well, now I'll just, you know, drink myself to death. Well, that, you know, that's a little <laughs> overreaction. You're really going to hell there, man. I know. No, but I, I've, I've experienced it myself. I know that I will snack on something that I didn't think I should snack on. And then it's like, oh, well, what the hell? I've already had one cupcake. There's still five left in the bucket. I can have another two and there's still two left for the kids. Yeah. There you go. Well, and I don't have to eat all five before lunch. I can, I can <laughs> save a couple for after lunch. <laughs> uh, but it's really interesting as we think about streaks and the power that they have because they can be really powerful. I you know, for years have been doing a nightly thing about flossing and brushing my teeth and taking my medicine. And every night I check off on the calendar that I have right next to the mirror. And it's one of those pieces that is a motivation for me. I like seeing at the end of the month, I like seeing I've checked every single day off and it helps. It helps keep me doing those things. And I think same thing for people who are trying to establish a, a exercise routine or doing some sort of practice, whether it be Duolingo or music or yeah. uh, writing in a journal or anything else is that constant reinforcement streak. And we know from other research that we often times think creativity comes from things that are inspirational, right? But we know that no, if you just continue to do stuff. So streaks, I think are really important too, for some of the more mundane things, writing, um, you know, making sure that you get your uh, tasks done um, that you have, I, well, like you I, whatever said, it would be. Medication, those kinds of things, having, having streaks are important there. And, and the record keeping is, is good because they help build up the habits. 
mm-hmm. right? They, yeah. they actually help actually uh, do that. I wanted to make sure that we talked about habits and context because habits are contextual. And by the way, baby, context matters. Context matters. There you go. Yeah, just just got to get that in. There are so many things that uh, people who talk about habits uh, refer to these specific triggers or cues. And it's important to for us to understand what those triggers or cues are or to, to create them sometimes, to, to create them in order to create new habits. But what they often don't take into account is changing contexts. And I thought that that was really important in our discussion with Samuel about how context can change and that can either throw things off or we can just allow, as he talked about the flat white coffee in Australia and and tea uh, you know, back in Stockholm, it's okay to have different habits in different contexts. Right. It, it was interesting though for me is his, his idea that, you know, these, I, the, the concept that Hey, we have this cue, and that cue should be enough to to trigger the behavior and get the reward. But we don't take that cue in context always. So his his example of practicing Duolingo at various different times in different parts of you know of the day, and what that does is then it's not the same. It's not in your the way your brain processes. It, it may not be the same neurons firing because it's in a different context. So think about that. The time of day you practice something, having mm-hmm. a flat white coffee in Australia versus somewhere else, uh, the music uh, that you're listening to yeah. when a cue happens, right. uh, the room in which you do something, if those aren't always the same, then there's some different aspects that are going on in your brain. And so it may be harder to form a habit because those neurons that are firing might be slightly different. And it makes it harder. It just just makes it harder. And by the way, here we are in a time in the middle of the crisis where there's still a lot of lockdowns around the world. Everything is different. Mm -hmm. All the contexts in which we normally did things, work, exercise, uh, play, all those, all of those things are in different contexts and we have to give ourselves a break. Well, and to think about the habits that you're forming now, and when things get back to a semblance of normalcy, are they going to stick because the context has now changed? The context is no longer uh, stay at home. It is going out and doing different things. So the habits that you establish now, you have to think about how they're going to last given a changing environment and contextual factors. What about rewards being both intrinsic and extrinsic? All right. So uh, this would be my one piece where I, I agree with with Samuel, but I also have a, a little bit of, of contention. So it, I, I love the idea. We, we definitely oftentimes think that uh, when we think of rewards, we think of extrinsic rewards and we right. think of those external rewards and, and we forego or don't think as much about intrinsic rewards. Fully agree with that. Fully agree too, that intrinsic rewards are, are powerful, um, but they're often hidden. They're, they're harder to discover what it is. We have to ask those questions, ask why we have to frame the question appropriately to really understand what is that intrinsic reward for us. Um, but I am not a big fan of of drive. We've 
talked about this on some episodes yep. before. I think the, the Dan work Pink of DC is, and, yeah, DC and Ryan and Dan Pink. Yeah, and, and self-determination theory of DC and Ryan. Dan Pink is a good author. Um, I think he he cherry-picked some of the the data that he had. Uh, and there's there's lots of research that shows that extrinsic rewards can actually increase intrinsic motivation if they're they're framed in the right way and structured in the right way yep. and they cr- help in create uh, in creativity and a number of other things and so uh, the bad rap that extrinsic rewards get I think is often overblown yep. um, but that does not discount what Sam was saying about um, you know this idea that when we're forming a habit and they have that reward as part of the habit formation, you know, the cue, the behavior, and then the reward part of it, that doesn't always have to be an extrinsic thing. And actually it probably shouldn't be if you want to continue it on for the long term. And so we have to think about um, not always about what you get, but about how you feel and some of that intrinsic piece of, of that. Yeah. So that certainly reinforces uh Teresa Mobley's work on the importance of intrinsic motivation as well. There's a lot of really great work that that really focuses on the importance of intrinsic motivation, but it doesn't live in a vacuum. Yeah, uh, you know, intrinsic motivation isn't is doesn't have to exist exist for some pure, you know, um, you know, sacred purpose. Uh, yeah. uh, it can be stimulated positively in a really healthy and meaningful way by some extrinsic motivation, by some extrinsic uh, stimulus. And yeah. there's a lot of really great things that can come from that extrinsic stimulus to generate and uh, more long-term commitment to uh, basically just anything that you're doing. Yeah. Well, I did uh, some research. It was kind of ad hoc research that we were at a conference and we had a uh, a uh, stationary bike that you rode and when you rode it, it the faster and longer you did it would raise up these lights kind of like when you take the sledgehammer and you hit the thing and it rings the bell right and so we had a little element going on there and it was really interesting because people there were some people that would walk by and just you know get on the bike or want to get on the bike. Um, but for the vast majority, nobody wanted to do that, right? It wasn't something that they were excited to do. So we gave away a t-shirt. If you got, and you lit up that very first light uh, by riding that bike, you got a t-shirt. Which which um, wasn't super easy, by the way. It actually took some effort to get even to well, the first li- level. Uh, well, a little bit, right? But it wasn't it wasn't overly thing. But what was interesting is we had a hundred t shirts to give away. We 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 ran it with a hundred. Only one person stopped at one light. Yeah. So once they got on and they hit that first light, they could stop. They got their extrinsic reward and they could leave. And that was, it would take much less time, much less effort, all of those things. But once they got on, they got this intrinsic motivation to see how how high can I get those lights? How, how, how good am I going to do? And then there's, we also had a leaders board and people would come back and they saw that they were no longer on the top 10 leaderboard and they they wanted to hop back on. And we said, sure, but you can't get another t-shirt. And they're like, that's okay. They just want to get on because they want to do it faster and, and higher. So uh, there's this piece of extrinsic reward helping jumpstart behaviors. And I think that is often overlooked in research. And we've seen this all the time in organizations, trying to jumpstart behaviors of salespeople. And you sometimes need to use an extrinsic reward to get them to do something different. 
And once they start doing something different, then it becomes more of a habit or more of a routine. Uh, they see the benefit of doing that and it becomes commonplace, but they're not going to do it uh, out of the blue uh, unless they're either forcibly told they have to and there's a punishment or there's some extrinsic reward associated with doing it. So I thought that was just an interesting piece that we didn't get to talk to. Maybe Samuel thinks the same way of that. I'm not sure, but a piece of information that we've we've had in our work. All of that reinforces the idea that emotion is so closely related to motivation uh, that there is this irrational aspect to motivation, right? Because your example is perfect. 99 out of 100 people went above and beyond what they rationally had to. They could achieve the goal. They could achieve the reward and earn the reward with just getting to the first light. But all but 99 out of 100 went beyond that. They wanted yeah. they wanted more. And that is irrational. That is emotional. That is that is where motivation comes to light. And this is is part of the magic of of the extrinsic reward being the stimulus for the intrinsic motivation to do better, to compete, to to excel in whatever way that they wanted to. Yeah. It really is an interesting piece and the emotional aspect of motivation, you nailed it. It's it's really there. What else? Cognitive dissonance. When uh, when Samuel said we are storytelling machines, man, that that lit up my frontal polar cortex. I'll tell you, <laughs> <laughs> I love to think about humans as being reason-seeking machines. We are really great. We are just it, it. We just have lots of DNA piled onto our ability to tell stories. I thought that, right. that was important that you teed that up. Well, and we don't like it when our beliefs don't match up to that reality. So, the stories that we tell about ourselves, our self-identity, and then the behaviors that we see, we either, because of cognitive dissonance, right? This this angst that we feel, right? What is it? Cognitive dissonance occurs when a person holds two or more contradictory beliefs, ideas, right. or values, right. and the action that and they participate in an action that goes against one of those and they experience a psychological stress because stress yeah we don't like that stress and so that so, means we want to resolve it then right and and we resolve it in 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 one of three ways right we we change our behaviors to match the the story that we have about ourselves that self identity yeah. that belief that value the idea or um we change that story about our um ourself, right? So, oh, maybe I'm not. As I always talk about, I had, uh, you know, on my bio, I always had this, uh, I was a canoer. I would, you know, I love <laughs> canoeing, right? And then I started to think about it and I'll go, I canoe maybe once a year when we go up to the boundary waters. I don't mm -hmm. canoe all the time. Why would I ever consider myself a canoeist? But yet it was this, this idea that I had about myself. And so I had to actually take that off of my bio because didn't really match with reality, I would I would think. Too much um, cognitive dissonance. Too much cognitive dissonance there. Or the third thing which happens way too much is that we we have these uh we make up excuses. Uh, we do this cognitive dance of telling stories about why 
we didn't do the behavior or why we did the behavior that doesn't match with what we do. And that's where I think Samuel really highlights this is that we are storytelling machines. And so it's about both the stories we tell about who we are and what we are, but also then those stories that we weave to make sure that there isn't this cognitive dissonance between this idealized self of who we are and the behaviors that we're actually doing um, in, in real world. And we have to contrive these stories yeah. to make those two match. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, we even wrote a song about it. About, <laughs> right? We did. We're making up a story to relieve the contradictions between what I want to be and what I do. Uh, just to quote a really great lyric that we created. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, somebody was amazing at that. We should play that that song at the end of the episode. We should just add it in at the end of the episode. So, but we guys have a treat at the end of this episode. We'll, we'll add in cognitive dissonance. Done. By behavioral grooves. All right. <laughs> That's right. Hey, and, and speaking of music. Yes. So uh, I found this particularly interesting when Samuel said that he thought it'd be more interesting to talk to a musician than talk to a sports player. Did you Did you feel the same way? Did you have that, <laughs> they have that little bit of... <laughs> I knew I, I lit Dopamine. up because I'm like going, oh, yeah, I'm sure Tim is going to go off on this. <laughs> it's like there, there is there's what is the the bias that we have? We think of like, oh, a sports player is going to be just a jock that doesn't have this, you know, uh, hold a conversation outside of their own sport. And yet somehow we we think that musicians are more widely or or worldly and probably can talk through a number of different things. And I don't know if there's any truth to that probably isn't, but no. I think that's a commonly held belief. It was interesting to hear Samuel say that. Well, is it, could part of that come from the idea that when we think about the work that a musician does a song, let's have a, a songwriter. Okay. Not, not, uh, not just a player, but a songwriter, not it, the bass player that just sits back there and, well, I'm not going to diss any bass players because no, I know. Well, you know all those bass players. Come on, they just sit back and do nothing. No, we right? can diss the drummers. We can always diss drummers, but not <laughs> bass players. <laughs> but uh, the, the, to do your job as a songwriter, you have to have a lot of inductive reasoning. You're pulling mm -hmm. from the world, right? You're 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 using your brain. Your creativity is a big funnel for a lot of disparate ideas, mm -hmm. whereas. Someone who's playing a even at a, at a national level, at a professional level, if you're a great basketball player, you have to use a lot of deductive reasoning. You mm -hmm. need to be refining and really working on what what makes sense to you, and and uh, and you're you're working from within a very specific field already. This is what works. I have to do that. Uh, rather than the musician that's working from the, I don't know what's going to work. I'm going to go out into the world and see what works. I'm going to test the data, basically. Yeah, and I wonder I, if that I, might be part of it. I think it could be. I think there's some real valuable pearls there that you just were able to uncover. Inductive and deductive. Damn, Tim. Good stuff. <laughs> well, that's why I would rather have... You know, I'd rather have a conversation with David Byrne from the Talking Heads, um, and as you know, as much as Michael Jordan is an incredibly bright and or Shaquille O'Neal, my God, I mean, an entrepreneur, you know, over and over yeah. again, right? Obviously, a really bright guy, uh, but I think I would rather sit down with David Byrne to talk about his worldview and this expansive ability to boil things down from this complex world into 16 stanzas, I think is amazing. I don't know. I love my sports, but you know, yeah. I 
don't know if I would pick that versus having a really cool conversation with the band members from Depeche Mode. Yeah. I, you know, would you like to have a Was it Robert Smith? Who was? For them, The Cure. Oh, Robert he was Smith from The from Cure. Cure would yeah. be awesome. Yeah. yeah. So people hang on because we have a bonus track coming up. Hey, Groovers. This is Kurt with the bonus track. In our conversation with Samuel Seltzer, we covered a lot of ground. Here are a couple of the key takeaways. First, streaks. Those times when we do something consistently over a long period of time. We're not talking about running naked through a public place. That's not the kind of streaks we're talking about. Um, The other types of streaks, they can have both a positive and a negative impact on our behavior. They can help track how well you're doing when you can't see the change that is taking place in your brain. They provide ongoing motivation to do the behavior, which can help it become automatic. However, they can also feel daunting. They, you can feel great disappointment when a streak is broken, which could result in the what the hell effect and cause you to just quit what you are doing altogether. Second, habits are contextual. You need to understand not only what the trigger or cue is, but in what context that trigger or cue is happening. Keeping the context the same or very similar can help in forming a habit. Lastly, cognitive dissonance is powerful. It can be negative in that it causes us angst and makes us cognitively deceptive, telling stories to ourselves and making up excuses. But it can also be put to good use if you can harness it to drive positive behavior change in order to match the self-identity that you have for yourself. All right, our groove idea for the week. What is a behavior that you want to start? Keep it simple. See if you can keep a streak going on that behavior for a week. Write down the behavior and keep a daily checklist to see if you can do it. Let us know how that goes. And lastly, we want to thank you all for listening. We do this because it's a passion for us and we are so grateful that you listen. Please let us know how we're doing and anything we can do to improve. As you know, you can reach us through any of social media outlets as well as the comments section on Behavioral Groove's website. Stay safe and make it a great week. of the tunnel. I'm just hoping it's not a train. Could it be that I'm lying to myself? That this moonshine I'm drinking really isn't champagne. My beliefs don't match what I